Uh, I want to thank you all for hanging in. Uh, I hope this has been uh, informative so far and helpful to you so far. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, since we're kind of at the halfway point, what thoughts people have had from today? What, what are you thinking about what you've heard so far? Just out of curiosity. What, anything come to mind? I'll just take one answer and then I'll go on about my business. But it's, it's, <laughs> surely, surely one person has a thought about what they've heard so far today. Cool. Empowering and cool, which was more than I expected from today. So I feel good about that. A uh, couple of things uh, to mention before. Uh, if you weren't here before, I just want to remind you, if you were interested in the Ordinary People video that you saw or wanted to see it again and want to share with other people, it is available on YouTube at no cost, so you can watch it as many times as you want to, so if you want to do that. Uh, also, wanted to let you know that this, these sessions are being recorded, so if you want to play back later or share with others later, you will be able to get the information out to you. And one other thing, uh, Ty has laid out some material on this back table, uh, brochures and books. He tells me the brochures are free, the books are not. So uh, if you're interested, and he can tell you more about them when he, when he comes back up here. But uh, see, Eric, yeah. if, you need, if you were interested in buying the book. Uh, you know, one of the exciting things about what we saw today, I think, was just the amazing thing that's going on in Africa. And I'm so excited that Matt Mill is going to be here to do that and to introduce Matt to us today for those of us who need to be introduced to Matt, which is only a few of us. Uh, I want to bring up Jennifer again to talk about that. Jennifer, thank you. Hello, everyone. Again, we're glad you're still here. Hey, how are y'all doing? I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Anyway, sit down, Willie. Um, I have the privilege of introducing Matt Miller, who I've known probably 24, 23, 24 years. Um, we, Stephen and I are their contact people and have been from the very beginning when they just had Abby as a little, little baby. So we've seen all these other children be born and grow up. And they've uh, stayed with us many times and we've visited them as well. Matt, um, started his missionary uh, venture, Matt and Andrea both, uh, in Togo, West Africa. I mean, yeah, West Africa, East West. Um, very hot country, I must say, very hot, very hot. But um, so he, he started there planting churches and that is where he transitioned into the disciple making movement process about 16 years ago, 16, 17 years ago. Um, I did get an opportunity to hear about that when we had Kumva Rwanda here. We hosted a, um, an event here where people from all over came um, to celebrate Rwanda, but Matt spoke some about uh, Discovery Bible Studies and the disciple-making movement then as well. But from Togo, they went to Rwanda, and they've been in Rwanda 12-ish years, something like that, 11, 12, 12 years. That's what I thought. Um, and a uh, very different country from Togo, lots cooler, <laughs> much cooler. But uh, they have started VVA, Virunga Valley Academy, an international school there. Um, and if you're coming to the banquet tonight, you'll hear much more about that. But um, Matt um, has been a very important part of this church. Um, every time he comes back to visit, he has uh, great words of wisdom to share with us, and we appreciate that. Um, Matt and Andrea are dearly loved by many people in this church, and I'm excited to hear what he says about Discovery Bible Studies. Um, I'm sure it will be very profound. So without further ado, here's Matt Miller. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. It is really great to be with you all. We are nearing the end of our time in the States. Next Wednesday, I'll be flying back to Rwanda and Andrea and the girls will go about a week later. Um, so it's been good to be here and to get to connect with everyone. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be sharing a lot of things and I want, before I start, to just say a word about something that may be upside down from what you would expect or what I expected. Um, I think 23 years ago, as Jennifer mentioned, when, when we were sent to Africa, the thought was, we are going to go to teach Africans something. And there were moments where we were able to teach people things that they hadn't heard before. But as I look at the overall arc of our experiences in Africa, and especially this second season in Rwanda, 
I have learned much more than I have taught. And my teachers have been African men and women who are following Jesus in incredible ways. So they are the source of much of what I'm going to share with you today. And uh, I think it's an incredibly kingdom-like thing because the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom that the senders are actually the receivers of blessing. And I don't know if you noticed in the video that we just watched, but uh, it was mentioned in passing a couple of times, but Casey Underground really started through the influence of disciple makers in East Africa. When they wanted to learn how to make disciples in America, they went to Nairobi, Kenya. And I've had the privilege over the last few years of gathering, um, there's a global event called the Catalyst Camp, DMM Catalyst Camp that's hosted by uh, one of the guys you saw on the screen, Ayla Tase, who is an incredible um, disciple maker and catalyst of disciple makers. And uh, I actually met Corey, who is uh, throughout that video, before KC Underground existed on his first trip to Africa to kind of check out God's doing something here, what's happening and how can we bring it back to the US. So it's really cool to see that Africa is blessing America. So lest anyone think that I'm here to share my wisdom, this is not mine. This is things that I have learned from incredible African leaders. Um, I put up a picture. This is not the gathering to talk about VBA, but uh, tonight we, we have a benefit dinner. We're going to be sharing more about our school in Rwanda. But I just wanted to give you a picture of that so you could see what it's like. We did not intend to start a school when we went to Rwanda. Um, but when you follow God, he plays lots of tricks on you. We did intend to go and be about discipleship. And I thought most of our time in Rwanda would be about the kinds of things I'm going to talk with you about today. But we also had to figure out how to stay there. And we had this, this problem. We had four kids who needed to be educated. You're not a problem, but yeah. a little bit of a problem. Um, I do like to introduce Asher as my African-American son. He was born in Ghana, so he uh, is from Africa. But yeah, we, we had to figure out how to educate our kids. And um, we started an informal school. And along the way, our Rwandan friends started asking if they could bring their kids. And that was just the door that God opened for us to establish a presence in a place where being a missionary is challenging. If you know anything about the history of Rwanda, 29 years ago, there was a genocide that over the course of 100 days, a million people were killed. And many of those people were, were killed in church buildings. Some of them killed by their fellow church members, by pastors of the church. Um, there was a Catholic priest who bulldozed the cathedral down on his parishioners. So that context is not necessarily a place where the arms are just wide open to welcome missionaries, because missionaries were a part of bringing in the ideologies that led to genocide. So in Rwanda, you have to be more creative about how you build a long-term presence. So the door that got open for us was the school. So now my day job is the director of Runga Valley Academy. And it's actually right in the middle of that original discipleship focus, because we get kids who, some of them join us at age two, and will be with us all the way to age 18. And outside of their, their home, we are the greatest influence that they will have in their lives. So we have incredible opportunities to share Jesus with them and to do life with their families. But I'm going to be talking more today about a second part of our life in Rwanda, which is um, engagement that I've gotten to have with an incredible group of Rwandan leaders who have started a disciple-making movement. So the second part of what I'm going to share with you will be a little bit about their story and some of the things that I've learned practically from them. Before that, though, I want to get into um, some theology, which we touched on a little bit in the first session. Um, and much more also in the video that was shown. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. Oh, wait, actually, don't open your Bible. If you're there, don't look at it, because <laughs> I want to do something. I, I'm going to quote the Great Commission to you, but I'm going to leave something out. I want to see if you can catch what I'm skipping. So there's the part that we already saw in the video where it talks about some of them doubted. 
Then Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. Oh, sorry, baptizing. We're Church of Christ. Can't forget baptizing. <laughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and then at the end, and lo, I will be with you always till the very end of the age. I left something out. Sorry? Teaching them to obey. Yeah, teaching them to observe. Teaching them to obey. There are those who have called that omission that I just made the great omission from the Great Commission. And I would suggest that we have approached the mission or the commission that Jesus gave as if it were a commission to teach everything that Jesus commanded. But it actually says to teach, to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So I want you to think what, and, and I want this to be interactive, so I'm going to ask this and hear your thoughts. What, what kind of, pro, how is the process different? If the mission is teach everything Jesus commanded, what would that look like? Or if the mission is teach to obey everything Jesus commanded, what would that look like? So let's, let's start. What does it look like if the mission is to teach everything Jesus commanded? What would you spend your time doing? Just repeating the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Repeating them to people, telling people the words? Okay. Might be somewhat effective. What else? What kinds of activities would grow out of a, a mission or a church that is focused on teaching everything that Jesus commanded? Study the Bible. Yeah, Bible studies. Lots and lots of Bible studies. And that's good. What else? Well, lectures, yeah. What would the gatherings of those kinds of, of groups focused on that look like? Information. Mm -hmm. Passing on information. Perhaps a single presenter just instructing. Yeah. So maybe preaching. Sorry, Brett. <laughs> preaching is good, too. What else? What about uh, the, the educational side, like classes? What do those look like in a place where the goal is to teach everything Jesus commanded? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you know that you have accomplished the mission if the mission is to teach everything Jesus commanded? Yeah, you could have a test, but at the end, the, that mission has been accomplished when people know those commands, when they have them in their mind. Maybe they're memorized. Now, I'm, I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm just suggesting that's not actually what the commission said. Let's go to the other side. What does it look like if a mission or a church is focused on teaching to obey everything Jesus commanded? What, what kinds of activities would there be? What would the gatherings of the church look like if that were the mission? Would it, would it look different? Observing how. Observing how? There's, it'd be more relational and focus on like and why a little bit. Okay. And why, what that relationship with Christ looks like instead of just like teaching the commands. Because like it's one thing to just know the commands, but it's another thing to like to be able to do them. Why, like why you want to obey. Yeah, so there's a difference between knowing something and being able to actually do it, right? You have an example of what obeying what obeying is, mm -hmm. set the right example of what obeying is. So if you want someone to be able to obey, what kind of process needs to take place? Discussion, accountability. Discussion, accountability. Where does it happen? In education, we call it service learning. Okay, yeah, service learning. So tell me what that is. What's service learning? Well, instead of being in the classroom, you, like in social work education, you send your students out to oppress to actually practice the skills. Mm -hmm. And that's what I learned. Okay, I think we're getting at something here. What if, what if you, you find out you have to have uh, surgery and you go to your doctor and the doctor says, don't worry, I've read a book about this. I know every step. Do you want him to do your, sur your surgery? No, you want the person who, this is the thousandth time that they have done it because we're looking for practice, not for knowledge. So I want to suggest that perhaps we have approached the Great Commission in a way that will not get us to the end that the Great Commission is actually leading towards. And you guys said it beautifully, Bible study is not going to get us there. 
Now, we need Bible study. Again, don't hear me saying that knowing Jesus' commands is not important. You have to know them to be able to do them, but knowing them is not enough. We have to be doing them. So one thing I like to say is why we've had enough Bible studies. Now, of course, we always need to study the Bible. It's time for some Bible doings. What would happen if we started Bible doing groups instead of Bible study groups? Now, you still have to study because you can't do it unless you study. But the emphasis of the Great Commission is on, on doing more than on just knowing. And my, my East African friends would say if they were going to boil down the movement that is happening there to one word, it would be the word obedience, putting into practice the things that Jesus has taught. So how do we have a process that that gets us there. So everything I just said, I would say is non-negotiable. If we want to be about discipleship, we have to be training people to put into practice what Jesus taught. How you go about that, that can be negotiable. That's, that's tactics. But whatever we're going to do from this point on, it has to lead to that if we claim to be Great Commission Christians. We have to be producing disciples who put into practice everything that Jesus taught. Um, I'm going to tell you about the way that I think is one of the most effective ways to do that in my session today, which is Discovery Bible Study. But I don't want you to hear that that's the only way. If you can come up with something better, I'll grab it. But I've not seen anything better. Um, and a lot of the things that are being done may have different names, but the core ideas are very, very similar, whether you call it Discovery Bible Study or Three Thirds or T for T or whatever. But we need to be doing something that is training people to be obedient to what Jesus says and do those things. So I want to go a little bit further on the Great Commission because I've noticed something recently about the Great Commission. Um, what are, the, what are the five questions that we're taught to ask uh, when you're reading a text? We teach this to the third graders. Like, if you want to write a good informational text, what questions do you have to answer? They all start with a W. Yeah, who, what, where, when, and how. And why, yeah, and why. So. Think about the Great Commission. You can open your Bibles and look at it now if you want to. Let's, let's try to answer as many of these questions as we can from that text. Start with who. Who's the who? Jesus is the one giving the commission. Who is he giving it to? Yeah, so the, originally it was the 11 disciples. Okay, good. Then we don't have to worry about it. It's just for them, right? <laughs> why, why are we talking about this, you know, 2,000 years later? Was it just for the 11 disciples? What part of the Great Commission makes us think that it's for us as well? Because we all believe that. This is for us. But just from the text, it was given to these 11 guys. Any, is there any clue in the text that could get you from those 11 to us sitting in this room today? Teaching them to observe. So, yeah, that's where it is. It's, it's a chain that with, with all of its ups and downs and challenges, it, it has worked. We are here today talking about making people disciples of Jesus. So that commission that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago, there's a direct line to all of us sitting here that goes back to those disciples obeying, they made disciples who made disciples who made disciples, and here we are today. So yeah, that's the who, disciples. You have something, Ashley? Okay, what's the what? Well, yes, but that word's not in the text. So just looking at this text, what's the what? Go, go. Okay, go. Go do what? Yes. And uh, Todd got to geek out a little bit. It's been 25 years since I had Greek, but 
and I don't, I don't love it when people say, in the Greek. But this one is actually very interesting. The only word in the command form in this passage is make disciples. All the rest of the things are uh, modifiers of this. This is the command, make disciples. And I've heard it said that this is even a, as you go, make disciples. So the baptizing them, teaching them, that is a part of how, oh, there's another one down there, of how we do it, right? Okay, uh, where? Yeah, all nations. And this, the word nations, ta ethne, it actually means ethnic groups, language groups, dialects. This is everywhere. Um, we are going to make a turn in the next session talking about how does this all apply to here. But we should never let go of the all nations, even as we're focusing on the city of Birmingham. And more and more, it's impossible to even focus on the city of Birmingham without addressing the nations, because God is bringing the nations to Birmingham, immigrants are here. And I love that Homewood is seeing that and are starting to engage with immigrants. But we, it's always all nations. You know, you, you can't be a, no, I'm just about domestic missions and forget about the world. And you can't be a, I'm a African missionary and forget about Latin America. And, and the further we move along globalization, it's all mixed up. Our school has kids from Colombia, from Peru, and this is in a little town in Africa. The world is everywhere. Um, all right, when is when answer? Yeah, forever. Yeah, forever. And that's a part of that chain of causation that we looked at before. So I want to suggest that these two questions are not as clearly answered in the Great Commission. The why and how. We get a little bit on the how because we know that making disciples means disciples will be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they will also learn how to put into practice everything that Jesus commanded. But in the Great Commission, Jesus didn't give out the instructions on how to do that. Why not? Why didn't he tell us how to do it? Any thoughts? Yeah, he didn't have to tell the 11 disciples how to do that. He just spent three years with them showing them how to do it. So if we want to learn how to make disciples the way that Jesus did, we actually have to look at how he lived his life. And in just a second, I'm going to do a really broad view of Jesus's strategy to show you, I think, some key ideas about what he did. But the how is Jesus. Look at how he engaged in relationships with people, in relationships with communities. And we will learn a lot about how to go about making disciples. Um, another thing with how is we can't do it on our own. And the great, my favorite part of the Great Commission is the very last line. I will be with you always to the end of the age. That makes everything different. But do we take that seriously? Do we plan as if Jesus is going to show up? Our, is our strategy dependent on the presence of Jesus for it to actually be possible? Because the kind of dreams that you dream when you're thinking about what you can do are very different than the kinds of dreams that you dream when you think about what Jesus can do. So that's a very comforting part of the Great Commission and a part of the how. What about the why? Why did Jesus give this commission to make disciples? And this, this is one of the most important questions, I think. I don't know, it seems to me that when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, then, then there's some, some connection there that, that what was, was given to him, that this is what he's passing on. So the why is because it has been given to me, I'm passing it on to you. Yep. I'm passing that authority. And, and that authority is to do what? To make disciples. To make disciples, teach them to obey everything. Why? You said something that's part of it. All authority on heaven and, and earth. Where else do we hear Jesus talk about heaven and earth? 
you think of a time in Jesus' ministry where he uses the word heaven and earth in the same sentence? What's that? The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, yeah. What is, what is it, Tom? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, I've got all authority on earth and in heaven. So the way is cleared for this to happen. What is it that Jesus wants to happen? Well, to know what Jesus wanted, one of the best places to find out is look at what he prayed for. If you want to know what people want, find out what are they on their knees at night talking to God about. And what was Jesus talking about? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't have time to draw this out because this could be a whole nother day, but I believe the kingdom of God is present where God's will is done in a place as it is in heaven. It's a great definition of what it means for the kingdom of God to be present. So where God's will is being done, are you going to have broken relationships? Not when his will happens in that place. Before there will be, but where the kingdom comes in, relationships are restored. Is there going to be poverty in a place where God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven? No. It will be addressed and transformed because there is no poverty in heaven. Everything that Jesus was about in his ministry, his message was the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he demonstrated it by reconciling and bringing wholeness into everything that was broken. So how does that happen? How do you, how does a place become transformed into a place where God's will is done there as it is in heaven? Just practically speaking, how does that happen? Any thoughts? You need a lot of people that are imitating Jesus. Yes, you need people who are imitating Jesus. People who are doing what Jesus does, right? So the why of make disciples who obey everything Jesus commanded is because that is the way for the vision, for the why to happen. The kingdom is expressed in places where people are doing what Jesus said. Yes. Also look at it too is that's you're fulfilling love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and loving others. Because if, if if you love others, you will do this. Yep. So that is the fulfillment of the law, right? I don't have notes, but you just read the next point <laughs> on my notes. <laughs> because so it can seem overwhelming to think we have to do everything that Jesus commanded. It's actually very simple. He said it's actually two things that you have to do, just two. And if you do these two things, you have obeyed everything that's written in the Law and the Prophets. All of those laws. And he's talking about Leviticus and Deuteronomy and what it was all about. And what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And think about the Ten Commandments. They're either about loving God or loving people. If you love people, you're not going to steal from them, you're not going to kill them, you're not going to take their wife. If you love God, you're going to honor His name. Everything is, is summed up by that. So do you see, I want to see the big picture of why the Great Commission. Jesus wanted obedient disciples because those obedient disciples will live in a way that His vision for God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven to, to come about. And when you find a group of people who get serious about loving each other, and loving God, things start to change. The communities around them start to change. This, this was Jesus' plan. I mean, this is, this is his last will and testament. These are some of the last words that he spoke. And you know, any of you who have been with people who are approaching that time where they're going to leave, they think very carefully about what they're going to say. And this is what Jesus wanted to leave us with because his whole mission was focused on that. So I want to show you one other thing and then um, make sure that we get to talk about Discovery Bible Study because I've found Discovery Bible Study to be one of the most effective ways for this to start happening within a group of people in really cool ways. But I want us to look at something in Jesus' ministry. So open, open your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Let me erase this.
Um, oh, I forgot to mention about the go. That's another one we've messed up. We've, we've acted as if the Great Commission was come when it's actually go. And if you look at what we actually do, we try to make church, it, we want it to be attractive and we want it to be welcoming and occasionally we will have people who come in off the streets. That does happen. But the majority of people who need to know about Jesus will never step foot in Homewood Church of Christ. They are out there, so we go to them instead of telling them to come. All right, we still, we, of course people are gonna come and we receive them, but the people who need to be reached are out there. All right, Luke chapter nine, let me open it up. We're actually just gonna read some headings because I don't have time to go into lots of details. There's something really cool that you can just see from reading the headings of Luke 9 and 10. Let me get to the right verse. All right, Luke 9. Someone tell me what the heading of Luke chapter 9 says in your Bible. Jesus sends out the 12. Okay. He sends the 12. All right. Now, look at Luke 10. What is the heading of Luke 10? Sends 72. Okay. Um, what's happening in Luke 1 through 8? Let me just read some headings. Okay. Um, birth of Jesus in Luke 2. The boy Jesus at the temple. Jesus is presented in the temple. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus heals many. Jesus calls his first disciples. That's significant. Other people are involved. But that's in chapter 5. After that, though, it's still Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, we get into the 12 apostles. Jesus raises a widow's son. Parable of the sower, lamp on the sand. Jesus is mother and brothers. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. Luke 1 through 8, who is doing all the stuff? It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. He picks up some disciples in chapter 5, and they're, they're present throughout. But up through, up to Luke chapter 9, Jesus is the one doing everything. There is a very important and strategic shift in Luke 9, where Jesus sends out the 12. He gives them authority in Luke 9:1 to drive out demons and cure diseases. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Then in Luke chapter 10, it's not just 12. All of a sudden, there are 72. So I want to ask you this question. Where did the 72 come from? Yeah, most likely they came as a result of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the 12 when they went out. Something has happened from Luke 9 to Luke 12 that there are 12 who are qualified or sent to go on mission. And then in Luke 10, suddenly it's 72 others. That's very interesting. So I'm going to read something to you. I'm going to read Jesus' response after he sends the 72 on mission. And we could spend several hours talking about what he told them to do. There's a really important principle that probably won't have time to talk about today, but the principle of people of peace and households of peace that is so core to what is happening in, around the world in disciple-making movements. I'm just going to mention that because you will need to learn about that, but we just can't do it today. But when the 72 are sent out, and they find people of peace, and they proclaim the kingdom of God, and they stay with those people, and they cast out demons, and they heal, and they come back. Listen to Jesus' response, because I think this is the place in Scripture where Jesus is more excited than any other place in the entire history of his ministry. Listen to what he says. This is Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. 
Oh, sorry, I started too late. Starting 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Yeah, this part's really important. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. But don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then he says that other part, it says, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. What is it that Jesus is so excited about? He declares the fall of Satan. I've seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's saying Satan is defeated. He says... What you just saw, what you just experienced is what the prophets and the kings longed to see and they weren't able to see it. What got him so excited? I'll let you guys answer. Disciples making disciples. Yes. The 72 going out and being able to do everything that he did, for some reason, that moment caused him to declare that Satan is defeated and to say that what the prophets and kings wanted to see fulfilled, you have now seen it. He did not have that reaction when he cast out demons, when he healed the sick. He did not have that reaction when the 12 went out. I'm sure he was excited. But what was it about the 72 being sent out on mission, being, a, being successful in going out and making disciples and proclaiming the kingdom? doing everything that Jesus did that caused Jesus to be able to say, Satan is done for. So we're going to go to one other passage and then we'll talk about Discovery Bible Study. Um, I thought about this a lot and another passage that, that we often teach on and, and think a lot about in disciple making movements is Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I want us to turn there. And there's so much in this passage that we could also talk about for the things we're talking about today we usually do in like three days of training. So um, Deuteronomy 6 has a lot of links to what we're talking about because this is where the greatest command that Jesus talked about, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do you know Deuteronomy is the book of the Bible that Jesus uh, referenced more than any other book in his ministry. All the things he said to Satan during the temptation, they're from Deuteronomy. Like this was Jesus' book. He loved this thing. So it's, I don't think it's a coincidence there would be many connections between Deuteronomy and Jesus' ministry. So in particular, I want you to look at, we're going to just read starting with 6 verse 1. As I'm reading this, Tell me if you hear any language that sounds similar to what we saw in the Great Commission. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are beyond your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Anything in that stand out to you that sounds like things that we talked about from the Great Commission? If so, just shout it out. What's up? Observe. Yeah, these, these are the commands teach you to observe. It's actually the exact same language as what Jesus used in the Great Commission. Do you think that's a coincidence? We know Deuteronomy is Jesus' favorite book. He quotes from it all the time. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think the fact that he chose to say in the Great Commission, teach them to observe, 
comes straight from this passage, which is the greatest command. Like everything that you read up there is a part of the command. The command doesn't just start with, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. It starts with that preamble to it. So yeah, that definitely comes from it. What I want to point out to you is that this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is not fulfilled by individuals. Okay? In those lead-up verses, this, this commission that God gives Israel to be obedient is a commission to do what? Who is supposed to do it? The obedience is who? Who is supposed to be obedient? Anybody see it? You, your children, and your children's children. I'm going to write this up here. And this. I want to suggest that the greatest command is not an, a command to individuals. It is a command to generations. And it is only fulfilled when you, the first generation, your children, the second generation, and your children's children are obeying the commands of God. And I put four in here because they're always in view. Because if you have a first generation person who is obeying Jesus, who helps a second generation person to obey Jesus, and then that results in a third generation, I think it starts a cycle that will continue on for generation and generation. All right. Um, there are many times in Scripture where there's this formula, you, your children, and your children's children, and forever. And it's a formula that can be used for good or for evil. It comes up sometimes like evil can be generationally established. Obedience can also be generationally established. I want to suggest that this was Jesus' playbook for his ministry. And I see a connection between this in Deuteronomy 6 and his strategy. Luke 1 through 8, who's doing all the stuff? Jesus. He is expressing his authority. He is teaching. He is casting out demons. He is the first generation. He passes it on to the 12, the second generation. Now, Jesus didn't have physical children, so I, I'm making a little bit of a jump in applying this to spiritual generations, but I think it holds. Um, the 12 walked with him. They were discipled by Jesus. Then all of a sudden there's a third generation of disciples who were not the ones who were originally called by Jesus. They didn't spend as much time. So Jesus, he's, he's displaying his authority. His next step is, can I pass this on to the 12? Can they do what I did? Can he multiply himself into 12 people? And it's very interesting, when he sent them out, he didn't go with them. They did it on their own. Something for us to learn as ministers and missionaries, if we want to see generational growth, sometimes we have to get out of the picture for it to happen. And Jesus got out of the picture to empower the next generation. Then when the third generation goes out on mission and they reach the fourth generation, that's when Jesus says, Satan is defeated. Because I think that is the moment that Jesus knew that what he started was going to continue and never end. So there, there's a lot to think about in this. And are you guys going to talk about coaching at any point? A little bit? Okay. I don't know. You, you're going to say whatever you want to after this. But I've, I've thought a lot about this. There are, there are different relationships that happen in passing on obedience generationally. There's the first generation, which is you learning from God and, and obeying it, okay? Then there is what I would call a mentoring relationship. When a first generation disciple makes a disciple of a second generation disciple. Mentoring means that you're sharing life. You're showing. It happens out there like the service learning. Mentoring does not happen in a church building on Sunday morning. Mentoring happens in the coffee shop, in the workplace, in the living room. It happens in life, all right? Um, 
But how do we go from second generation to third generation? What is the role of the first generation in the life of the third generation? I think we shortcut Jesus' strategy because often the first generation disciple gets too involved in the third, fourth, and on relationships. You can't be the parent of your grandchildren. You just can't. But you can come alongside your child and be a great blessing to them in raising your grandchild. And we need to learn, we need to learn how to be spiritual grandparents. So this role, the first generation comes along the second, alongside the second generation in a coaching role. Coaching is helping someone else to do something that you aren't necessarily going to do. I mean, you could do it, but you are coaching them to work with the next generation. This is the, this is the place that we need to learn in ministry if we want to see movements happening. So how does it change our whole vision? I mean, we're here for a discipleship conference, and I, I want to just keep moving the goalposts further because I think, I think the vision's got to be bigger. This isn't just about each one of us bringing someone to Jesus. That is great, but Jesus didn't get excited about that in his ministry when he was able to do that. Jesus got excited when the people that he reached first reached others who were equipped to reach the fourth generation. So again, the question I, I, I want to ask, and we don't have time to answer it, but the question I want, want you guys to be thinking about is, what are the processes, if we want to see multi-generational discipleship continue, what are the processes that need to happen in order for that to take place? Let me tell you what is not going to, to cause that to happen. If our strategy is, let's get people into the church building so they can be taught by, by Brett, that will lead to addition, not to multiplication. And Jesus wanted a movement. Check our time here. Um, so I want you to imagine something. I'm not going to do it, but when I'm training in Africa, we'll, we'll often get two people up, and one person will be uh, working through addition, and the other person is going to be working through multiplication. And we do a race to see who can get more people more quickly. So the addition person, their limitation is they can only pull one person up. So they're, man, they're active, they're disciple makers, they go out and they, they bring one. And then they go out and they bring a second. So after the first generation they have, if the first they have two, second generation there's three, four. On this side we're doing multiplication. So you, you bring one person up and then you both go out and then you bring four. And then you got eight, and then you got 16. And very quickly, this side of the room has almost everybody in the room, and this side of the room has a very small group of people. Multiplication is always much greater than addition. Again, in ministry, we've tended to, we've tended to bring everyone back to the first generation. If you want to be discipled, come to our discipleship class at church. You want to be discipled, let's get them in the door so they can hear the sermon. And we go and we keep making more and more second generation disciples. And we're full of first and second generation disciples. If we want to see transformation and movement released, we have to start learning how to help the second generation disciples make third generation disciples. And then mentor and train, train them to help these people learn how to make disciples. And it keeps going. So I'm going to show you a picture. I took this picture, wrong one, um, probably 10 years ago. And the guy standing in the middle with the white collar, his name is Justin Nkunda Begenzi. Next to him is Anne-Marie Kamikaze. Not the Japanese Kamikaze. It's <laughs> total linguistic um, uh, happenstance that Kamikaze is in Kinyarwanda. They're married, incredible disciple-making couple. Um, when I met Justin and Anne-Marie, the, the point that I met them there, they had about 40 house churches that they had begun. And I was meeting with one of those house churches. 10 years later, that 40 has grown to 1,500, and they've baptized more than 10,000 people. Um, in the front row is a lady named Eugenie. 
She is one of the most effective disciple makers and church planters on the planet. The last time I talked to Justin, she could trace 18 generations of disciples who made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. Who made disciples. Within Justin's network, it, it keeps growing. The last time I talked to him, it was 25 generations from, from him to the disciples who had been made. They figured out what it looks like to disciple generationally. The, the problem with this is you have to make the shift that they talked about in that video from discipleship being done and, and ministry being done by professionals to discipleship and ministry being done by everyday people. So how do we equip and train and launch people out? God is going to make his purposes happen. And I'm going to talk to Homewood here. And this is a, a kind of challenging. Let me ask, how many churches has Homewood planted in the last 20 years? And by planted, I mean intentionally launched and sent out to multiply the kingdom of God in Birmingham. Are you considering yourself at the No, not the Africa <laughs> stuff. You can't. I'm not going to let you out easy like that. How many? <laughs> I think the answer is zero. We've blessed some things and been a part of it. Have there been churches that exist out of Homewood? There are. I know some of them. And the stories about how and why they exist, there's a lot of pain and in difficulty in some of them. Some of them have better stories. What amazing blessing could there have been if 20 years ago, Homewood decided to intentionally launch people out? God's going to do his thing. He's going to get us out. The early church had this problem as well. When they first, when the church started in Jerusalem, they had it good. The, the, the apostles were there. It took, God had to bring persecution from Rome to scatter the Christian movement out of Jerusalem. And then they started reaching. Now, Paul was an early visionary who got out before the persecution. But for the actual Christian movement to really start to grow, it took persecution and pain and difficulty to get them scattered. There's a lesson in that. We can, we can get ahead of the game and do it, and there's blessing or we can wait and God's still going to make it happen and it's going to hurt. So what would it look like for us to shift and intentionally be a part of equipping and launching and sending people out? The problems is we, you can't control it. You lose control and that's scary. Are they going to believe the right things? Are they going to do things in the right way? And sometimes it's messy, but what is the goal? The goal is we want to reach the city of Birmingham. Can the city of Birmingham come to Homewood? How many parking places do we have out there? Not enough. How many people, how many lost people do we have in this city? Yeah. So how do we move into doing this intentionally and in partnership? Um, so Discovery Bible Study in the last, how, what time do I have to be done? Five, six minutes. We're going to take like 10. So we've talked about Discovery Bible Study. I want to just show you what it looks like and talk about how, why I think it's such a great way to help all this stuff happen. It was at the center of everything you saw in that movie. The practice of the disciple makers in, in Kansas City and the micro churches that are reaching former convicts and other people and the the people reaching Muslims in Tanzania and the house churches in Rwanda, this is what they do when they gather together. The first thing they do is pray. And the, the way we get to pray is, what are we thankful for? So at the beginning, if this is a group of people who don't pray or don't know, about prayer, just asking the question, what's something good that's happened this week? And attributing that to God. If the group is ready for it, how has God blessed you this week? And talking about that, and eventually that leads to prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done. Um, the second question is, and this is something that isn't in every Discovery Bible study list, but this is something our brothers and sisters in Rwanda insist on being a part of it. 
what have you learned? I'm, I'm going to do like one word summaries because I don't have time for all of this. What have you learned from God? So this is a question that, that helps the group to be constantly listening to what God has to say. Sometimes this is an insight from Bible study. It could be something that, that they've heard in prayer. But this helps a group function like the New Testament church functioned. Now, the, the Bible doesn't say a lot about what Christians did when they got together. What it does say that they did, we don't do. Uh, the only place I can find where it actually gives instruction, when you gather together, do this, is 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul says, when you gather, each one of you has a song, an instruction, a tongue, a, a word. Everyone came with something to share. And that resulted in the church being built up. We don't do that. It's just a fact. Um, I'm not saying that what we do is sinful or wrong, but we don't gather like the early church gathered as much as we say that we are the church that was founded in AD 33. Partly is because if everybody said something and we have gatherings of 500 people, we'd be there all week long. That's not what the early church gatherings looked like. It was much smaller groups and everyone participated in those groups. But so we have that happen. The third thing is, how did you obey? And of course, that's a question you can only ask from the second meeting on, the first meeting you haven't met yet. The fourth is, who did you share with? So all of those questions are kind of the introduction to the Discovery Bible Study. When you get into the Discovery Bible Study, we're studying passages and we ask, what do you learn about God or Jesus? or the Holy Spirit, after you read through the passage. In Rwanda, they read through the passage two times, and then they restate the passage in their own words without looking. Um, doing that helps put the passage into your heart so you can think about it all the time. It also preloads the passage for you to be able to share with other people. Because if, you, if you're coming up to somebody like this, they're probably going to run away from you. But if you have it in your heart, it's much easier to naturally talk about what you've been learning. The second question is, what do we learn about people from this passage? The third question is, is there something to do in this passage? Those three questions have led to some incredible learning for me as I've listened to my Rwandan brothers and sisters do Discovery Bible study. There's so much that you get. You learn about the nature of God, or if Jesus is in the passage, or the Holy Spirit. You learn about how God interacts with people, what he expects from people. And then the key question is, there's something for us to put into practice in this passage. So that's the middle part, the part that is actually the study. Then the last part, actually let's make this five, six, and seven. The last part is, first, I will. Each person decides, based upon what they've learned from that passage, what am I going to do this week to put this into practice? This is where the Bible study goes from study to doing. This is where the process goes from knowledge to practice. And I, I think out of all the things that I'm saying, if we would just add this one thing to whatever it is that we're doing as a church right now, it would be this. What would it look like if we, we don't start something, studying something new until we have all put into practice what we already talked about? Again, if the goal is obedient disciples of Jesus doing what Jesus said, what would it look like if that was what we evaluated? So we come together and last week we talked about loving your enemies. We had a great word about loving your enemies. This week we're all going to 
and you, you have to individually decide what you're going to do. You don't impose it on other people, but everyone says we're going to do something to take a step towards loving our enemies. And we come back together in our group the next week and ask, so how did it go? That is a moment of, that is a seminal moment for the future of this group. What are we going to do when we've gathered together, we've learned something that Jesus wants us to do, and we haven't done it? What we usually do is we don't even ask the question. We just go on to the next lesson and we have more knowledge. At that point in the Discovery Bible study setting, if, if people aren't doing it, it's not like we're not mean, but the group is like, well, why do you think we weren't able to do this? How could we do better next week? And if, if you go a long time with a group of people who are actually not interested in doing the things, then you realize you've got bad soil which is what Jesus said, the soil that doesn't bear fruit is bad soil. Are we good soil? So what would that look like in our Bible studies, even at Homewood, if there's a challenge to do something and we get to the point where we haven't done it? What if we didn't? Okay, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna study something else. Let's talk about why we weren't able to put this into practice. Let's pray for each other. Let's support each other in it. And let's, let's, this next week, let's make sure that we do something to love our neighbors, or, I mean, love our enemies. And then the next week, we come back together and start sharing, this is what happened, and God, God changed my heart. Or, well, it wasn't received, they shut me down, but it, well, at least you tried to obey. And, and we've all done it. Then we can move on to something else that Jesus said to do. If the goal is knowledge, we can just keep filling up knowledge and keep going on. If the goal is doing, so in Discovery Bible Study, this question is super important. This week, I will. Again, this needs to be the person making that decision. You can't impose this. That starts to become um, control and, uh, and can become abusive if the leader is the one who tells people what they need to do to obey God. It's got to be from the Spirit through the Word. Number nine, who will you share with? Number 10, they ask the question, what are the needs are there any needs in our group or needs in our community? And how can we meet them? These are the questions that our brothers and sisters in Rwanda are gathering around every Sunday. And these are the questions that pre prepare us for when we come back together. We pray, share what we learn from God. We talk about how did it go putting this into practice, all right? And then we talk about how did it go sharing with other people. These questions plant the seed of obedience in this group. These questions plant the seed of multiplication in the group. So after a discovery Bible study, we have learned a lot about this passage. We know more about God, about people. We've talked about what it would look like to put this into practice. We have had a discussion where everyone says, I think this week God is calling me to do this, and I'm going to try to do this this week. And I think this is a person who needs to hear about this message. And we talk about that. In the Rwandan house churches, they'll often write the names of the people that they're going to share with on a piece of paper, and they pray over them before they're finished with their gathering. And then the next week, this is the reporting. How did it go? And again, this isn't about like authority and, and control. Sometimes someone comes back, and they're like, I, I had a crazy week. I wasn't able to do this. It's not a rebellious heart and we support them, but in general, there is an expectation in the group that we're gonna be serious about putting into practice what we, what we learned about in this last week. And we're gonna share with other people. And, that, and as that happens, the transformation starts to happen. The communities around these groups, because they talk about what are the needs in our group, and they meet them, but also what are the needs in the community? Well, my neighbor, there was a rain and uh, there's a landslide and half of her crops were washed away. These are things that happened in Rwanda. So the, the discovery group says, well, let's make sure that they have the food that they need. What do you think that does for that neighbor? Opens their heart up to receive being shared with and to be interested in maybe becoming a part of this group. So this is the process that has driven everything you saw in those movies. It's happened in Kansas City, happening in Rwanda, happening in Tanzania. It is so simple. If you can ask questions, you can lead a discovery Bible study. Um, when we were in Togo, we, I went and did a training and we shifted our strategy to, to plant churches in this way. 
the first church I planted using Discovery Bible Study, I didn't even go to that. I've never been to that church on a Sunday. By the fourth meeting, the group was leading their own Discovery Bible Studies, and they weren't even Christians yet. Because they, all they had to do was ask the questions. And the number of people who feel empowered to be involved in disciple making when what they have to be able to do is sit with a group of people and ask some questions is so much more than the number of people who feel like they can get up and preach in front of a group of people. So this empowers very quickly large groups of people and, and helps them feel like they can be released to go out into ministry. So it's an extremely effective tool. Part of what we're doing today, like the, the goal of today is not to equip us all to go out and do all of this stuff right away. This is like to draw us in, into being interested. I am available to talk about what this could look like if you wanted to put it into practice. There are other people who know how these things work. And like my dream for Homewood would be for Homewood to become a launching pad for new communities in Birmingham who are sitting around the Bible in living rooms, in coffee shops, in workplace, lunch areas, in schools, just everywhere. And reading passages of the Bible together and saying, how can we put this into practice? And we have lists. Different people have thought through what are good, good lists of scriptures to go through. There's a list that we call Discovering God that takes you from Genesis all the way to the ministry of Jesus and that helps people eventually come into a relationship with Jesus and be baptized. Um, in, in our churches in Togo, they, they tended to go through the, the Gospel of Mark using Discovery Bible Study. It's short, and they just went through a few verses at a time and talked about what are we going to do to put this into practice. Huge growth and transformation that happened through doing that. And um, yeah, so I think I've used all my time and more. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. But we had to get through that. Also, I didn't like print out a, a brochure of Discovery Bible Study to give to you because that, that's actually intentional. Anything that you add that makes it feel like, oh, you have to have materials or, or um, resources to do this slows its ability to reproduce. I want whatever method I use as a disciple maker to require nothing but maybe a Bible and maybe a piece of paper and a pencil if you need it. Um, so I kind of resist making a discovery Bible study curriculum in, in a book. Because if people feel like they have to have that stuff, if they don't have it, they think, well, I can't do this. All you need is the Bible and the ability to ask some questions. So I'll stop there. Anyone have any initial thoughts or questions? Anything you want to say? If you don't have now, we'll be able to have a chance to talk about them more in our final. Yeah, we do have the, the panel time. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Matt. Yep, you're welcome.